Well, as we, uh, as we get started here, what I'd like to do in opening up this class is kind of first of all, I'd like to go over, <clears throat> just introduce Corinth, look at some things re- with regard to the location, um, just kind of open up as an intro. I'm going to try to even get in a good part of chapter one. Um, but our time will be as I'll be able to start seeing the clock moving here shortly. So um, that's always my frustration. So if you see that, my apologies in advance. Um, when I have a lot of material to cover, it's like the clock continue, just starts speeding up. So anyway, um, it's important that we kind of get a ground and some foundation as we start our study this morning and we contemplate this book there's some things I think that it's going to be essential that we're able to gain glean from this study Um, but as we open this intro I want us to think about the city of Corinth where's it located Um, got a got a map up here if I've got a if I've got a pointer here come on come over here you can kind of see this little area that uh, showing up here on the map, um, Corinth was located on an isthmus um, that's uh, basically between Upper and Lower Achaia. Um, it's about 55 miles uh, from Athens. It uh, was controlled the two major harbors that uh, had com- commanded the trade routes between Asia and Rome. Um, I've got a little little better picture that I can bring up just to kind of show you outlined where it's set. If you kind of notice this little spot here, this little area right here is what they refer to as this isthmus. Um, Say that five times. Um, But what is an isthmus? It's a, you think about this, it was uh, like a two miles south of a narrow isthmus that forms this land bridge. And that's kind of what they refer to that as a land bridge. Um, But that land bridge uh, was the main land mass of Greece in the Peloponnese Peninsula that we see here in this this area right here. Um, It's approximately four miles wide. Uh, Ancient Greek word for isthmus is neck, which refers to the narrowness of this land. And why was this area, when we think about Corinth, why was this, when you think about where it's located, you can see all around it from the Aegean Sea, Mediterranean Sea, what would, have been a, what would have been critical? What would have been something that would have been valuable with regard to where that's located? You think of anything just right off? Thinking about the times, how was a lot of trade, how was a lot of things, did it make it to those areas? By ship. I heard somebody say by ship. And the incredible thing is when you have that kind of an area and that little spot there, it's really amazing. Um, The things that I read about old Corinth versus new Corinth today, it's it's amazing what they've done with this isthmus. Um, Today you could go there, and from what I'm told, never been there to see it, but I've seen a lot of, again, photos and pictures, they've actually cut a small swath through that land that ships, and I mean literally almost a rub in the side of this rock 
where they can go through from this area of the Mediterranean Sea up through the Gulf of Corinth. They can make it up through that area. But if you think about Corinth being located in that area, that was something that was major when it came to the trade, when it came to where it was located. Um, the, uh, it, was the capital of, it was the capital of Greece. It was uh, great commerce and wealth uh, was a part of this city. This city was a population of about 500,000 people. Um, and, with, and, and just due to its commercial prosperity, uh, great trade center, it, it attracted a lot of different types of people, which made this area uh, really uh, effective for preaching the gospel. Um, this was also, and you think about all of this, you think about all the influx of people that could come there, um, it was also a very immoral and wicked city. Um, you've probably read and know about the, the famous temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. It was a, was a big attraction, huge attraction. Um, there were approximately a thousand women prostitutes that occupied this temple every day. Um, many women of the city, when you think about this situation and you think about this place, Many women of the city felt it a civic duty to provide service at this temple. It was, uh, the name Corinth became synonym for immorality, drunkenness, debauchery, filth. Um, Think about, uh, you know, and, and this is one of the things that makes a lot of this come to light when you think about Paul writing this letter and the things that uh, the church, so to speak, that, uh, and, the, and the audience that he writes to, I'm going to look at, uh, I'm gonna turn, if you want to turn with me, you're welcome to. I'm just going to refer to this again, just thinking about 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I'm going to look at verse, I'm going to start with verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is chapter 6, and we're, we're going to get to that uh, here in a few weeks. But when you see these things described here, that the unrighteous, as Paul refers to that, will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, um, Look at all the sin that he talks about and that he refers to here. And I personally believe that when we think about, and as we're going to talk about here momentarily, this morally wicked city, those that actually came out of worldliness, came out of these things, are going to be part of what we see here when we think about the church being established. These Christians that Paul's talking to, that Paul writes to, have come out of these things. Because, and, and, and again, how do we know that? Well, verse 11 of that same chapter, it says, such were some of you. You think about all of those things that he talks about, such were some of you. So I think, you know, it's, it's something I think that needs to 
kind of be in, in, uh, an impression that we need to have in our minds to realize that uh, these are the kind of things, these are the kind of sins, you know, that, uh, that Paul is referring to, that Paul is, is, it talks about here. Um, when he talks about, uh, when, when he refers in chapter 6 to, to these, these individuals. There's also speculation, again, I've read where some may have thought that when Paul wrote the book, when, when he wrote uh, Romans and thinking about chapter 1, think about all that's involved in chapter 1, that he may have been at a vantage point at, at, at Corinth where he wrote that book, where he could see the sin of that city, the wickedness, the sin, the immorality that exists there. Um, and, and, and obviously we don't, we don't have that that really jumps out at us, but obviously we know when we read Romans chapter 1, there's a lot of things in there that we can see that would be along those lines. Let's think about as the, the church being established. When was the church established in, in Corinth? Okay, second missionary journey. Uh, think back, Brian just uh, concluded a, a great study on Acts, and uh, is, where, would we, uh, where would we turn? Acts 18. We could see uh, that Paul began there, uh, Acts 18, verse 8. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So we see that things had started there. Uh, Paul settled here for a year and six months, a year and a half. And uh, during that process, uh, Acts 19, I mean, Paulus was a part of the work. What I'd like to do is we think about that. Uh, we know the location. We know uh, when the church was established. What I'd like for us to think about a little bit here is, again, as we continue with this introduction uh, to Corinth, um, this letter was written roughly around uh, 55 to 56. Uh, there's some who put it out as late as 57. But, uh, I mean, I think from everything, and again, if we look at Paul being at Ephesus, it was around that time. Uh, so I, I think that's going to be at least closer to the time frame as 55 to 56 that this was written. One of the things I, as, as, we th- as, as you look at this book as a whole, the first Corinthian letter, not chapter 1. We're going to see some things in chapter 1 that are going to stand out. But I think one of the things I want to, I want to look at this morning is and, and thinking about as the entire book. Um, I broke this down to, for us to think about problems that exist in the church. Um, and in that, um, I want us to consider this. And when we think about problems that existed in the church, um, it's, you have probably been places, I have been places where there may have been issues or problems. I hope not to the point where it wasn't something that couldn't be worked out. But through the years, you know, I've seen, um, experienced various issues um, there's unfortunately things I've read where uh, some have had, um, have eroded away to the point where unity was no, no longer existed among brethren. Churches, uh, split over various issues. Now, some of that actually had occurred before my time, but I've heard my dad refer to that. I've heard some of my, my, uh, my, my family talk about things that, you know, again, 
whether it was instrumental music, whether it was institutionalism, it was a lot of different things. But there, were, there have been problems in the church. But what were some of the problems that existed in the church at Corinth? Let's think about this. Anybody? Just think about that church, chapter 1. What are problems that existed in, at Corinth? Okay. They they had a, a a situation with a brother that was in adultery with uh with, with the wife he wasn't supposed to have. They had uh, people who were gossiping. They had every problem known to me. <laughs> okay. What else? What's that? Pride. Okay. Okay. Envy, chapter three. Heeding the wisdom of men. Walking after men. Now, it may seem like the same thing, but when you think about heeding the wisdom of men versus the wisdom of God, walking after men, I think as as, uh, we just heard here, that uh, that was definitely something that Paul is going to deal with. Chapter 5 is going to deal with fornication. But not only fornication, but what? Failure to do anything about it. Failure to discipline. Failure to... To, to act on that sin. Taking a brother to court was going to be something that he's going to deal with litigation. We're brethren, we're taking people to the civil courts and not necessarily working the problems out amongst themselves. Going to be something regarding, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the covering, we'll talk about a lack of subjection that existed here. Abuse of the Lord's Supper, where they may have been making a common meal out of that. Confusion over spiritual gifts. This church, it seems like, in chapter 12, talks about the nine gifts they had, but they were, they were, there was a lot of misalignment with regard to that. They were do, dealing with things that uh, were doing things out of, uh, out of control. There was, some, would, some were doing everything, speaking in tongues at once. There was a lot of things with regard to that. And then there was false teaching over uh, the resurrection, chapter 15. Um, there was, I guess you could have added something else to that, and that being the fact that they take Paul to task on his, his credentials, on who he is. Chapter 2, we'll, we'll get into to a lot more of that. But uh, I think it was something that, but when you think about this and you see that list, you know, when, when I, it's one thing for you to, to read about it. It's one thing for you to look at it. But I think whenever you think and you see this, what do you think when you see that? I mean, that's daunting when you think about this existed in the Corinthian, this, at the church at Corinth. These were the problems that these brethren were dealing with. And this is something I think it's uh, a, and, and when, when, and I'm hoping by the time we, we wrap this up today, it's already 10 till. I told you it was going to just be flying. Um, that uh, we'll have an understanding as to why Paul addresses these issues and why, why it's important. You know, he wants to help them. But if you think about this, how was Paul, how do you relate to them? How do you relate to these brethren? Well, you got so many problems, I'm out of here. that how he was? No. I mean, think about that. How many of us would say, you know, that's for, uh, that's for Leland and David to deal with. That's for somebody else. That, you know, I mean, that, this is a, uh, hey, John, hey, Gerald. Look at this. 
That's scary when you think about that. There's a lot of things up here. But Paul looks at these brethren and realizes if they truly will come to terms with who they are and the way that he's going to go about talking to them about this, that they can work this out. They have the capability to fix this. He didn't leave them to themselves. He wants to help them. So I think that's something that, you know, we need to realize. There was a lot of communication and I think when, we, when, when you think about this list, let's, let's just kind of move ahead here. I want to kind of look at this as an overview as we think about chapter 1 and we think about 1 Corinthians. There's, there was a lot of communication between Paul and the church at Corinth. Um, now, there, there may be some that might disagree with this, but I almost... From, from things I read and things that, that, I've, that, that I've studied, it almost appears to me that there were three, maybe even four epistles that Paul had written. And I want to show you where I'm coming from with this. And again, I'm saying this just to give you an idea of how much communication, how much interaction had occurred even with, when Paul wasn't there. When, and we, as we look at problems that were reported to him, Division, fornication, discipline, lawsuits. These were things that came to Paul's attention. Let's, I'm going I'm to look over at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm going to look at verse 9. And he says in verse 9, that first part of that, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle. I wrote to you in my letter. Well, that's not this letter. That's another time that he had written to them. And so, in a way, I think about, while this is labeled as 1 Corinthians, this may have been the first letter that we see here in chapter 5, verse 9, I wrote to you, and then we see chapter 1, which would have been, in a way, the second letter, and then 2 Corinthians that we have in the canon would have been the third letter. And again, I'm, I'm saying that just because it... it uh, it's something that I think that's, it's, it's worthy of our note just from the fact that um, when we think about the overview of this book, Paul had learned some issues from the house of Chloe. We see that as, as we look here in chapters 1 through 6. And we're going to get into a little bit more of her when we get into the actual chapter of ch- uh, chapter 1. Um, but what had he learned from the household of Chloe? Of Chloe? these things that we've listed here. But then there were also questions that the Corinthians asked Paul. How do we know that? Well, if we think about it, and I'm going to just quickly roll over here to chapter 7. From chapter 7, that listed chapter 7 through 14, questions the Corinthians asked Paul, he says, now concerning the things. Now concerning. He's going to say that at the beginning of now concerning the situation with marriage, chapter 7. Now concerning the things sacrificed to idols, chapters 8 through 10. The thing, now, concerning the, now concerning abuse of the Lord, now concerning spiritual gifts. When you think about now concerning, how would I know what the question was? Well, I don't. But I can surmise in that process 
that there was something that they had said to him because he's responding to them with an answer, with, with teaching. Now concerning those things related to Mary. And it says, now concerning the things, again, I'm just starting, which you wrote. He starts in verse 7, verse 1. Is it good for a man not to touch a wall? He's, re- he's responding to those things. So we've got problems that are reported to Paul that he received from the household of Chloe. We've got questions that the Corinthians asked Paul uh, with regard to the, and then he's going to also then, he's going to talk about the false teaching on the resurrection. He's going to talk about the collection for the saints. Um, so I think, I, I want us to kind of have that term in our minds, kind of where we think about now concerning those things. We think about, that'll, I think it's help us understand as we, as we go and, and get involved in the chapter, get involved more in the book, that we'll understand that as it comes to fruition, as we start to, to read and see those as, as our study continues in this quarter. But let's, let's move in here, and we're going to start with we're going to start with a book. We'll start with the actual chapter of chapter one. Divisions in God's wisdom versus men's wisdom. When I say intro, we've been through an intro, but I want to basically let us kind of go through an intro of chapter one and see how Paul, when we think about uh, him writing this letter, his greeting, um, his greeting to uh, to these brethren. Um, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 1, by the will of God, Sothenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who've been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, I want us to think about, we recognize as Paul writes to this church, and these are just some things that, that, that stand out to me as well. To the church of God. Is it proper for Paul to have called this the church of God? Sure. Absolutely. Did I hear a comment over here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, uh, you know, I've heard people talk about that. Uh, that, you know, it's, it's not the church of Christ, but what did God do? God established that plan from the beginning that through his son... That church would be established through Jesus. Um, but I also want to think about, as Paul writes to these brethren, to those who have been sanctified, and then he says, saints by calling. And I want you to think about, the, we just went through and looked at the problems that this church, all the problems that exist in this church. But what did Paul say to these the church has many problems, but Paul refers to them as saints. How's that happen? Okay. You know, when we think about that, I mean, th- this is still a church that has problems, but these are brethren. These are brethren that have. Uh, that have been set apart for the service of God. That's right. And I think it's important that we recognize that. You know, it's, it's not like they're ostracized. It's not like, you know, until you get your problems, you know, there's no way. You know, our world today, when we think about that, 
And, and, again, and again, when you think about the religious world, a lot of times the saint refers to somebody who's perfect. It refers to someone who earns a status, say, after death of sainthood. Um, both of those are false. Both of, both of those are false ideas. You know, and, and we think about saints and we think about being referred to this, to, to, as this congregation in Corinth being referred to as saints. They're sanctified. They're set apart. But I also want to think about as we continue this and we look at, uh, there's some things that I think that, uh, some thanksgiving that I want to look at here. What was Paul thankful for with this group, these brethren? He was thankful for the grace of God in verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. He was thankful that they had been enriched in all speech and all knowledge. Think about verse 5. And everything you were enriched in him and all speech and all knowledge. Does that mean that, they're, that, that, that they have the, the, the information, that they have all knowledge, that they're individuals that are, that are, that, that are flawless? You know, obviously not. We see there's problems that exist in this church. There's problems that need to be addressed. But at the same time, Paul is, is, is thankful that they were enriched. They were enriched in Jesus Christ. That they've had that capability. Verse 6 says, Even the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. So that you, verse 7, you don't lack any gift. And again, again I think uh, you, you may see this different, but I think that this could have a part of chapter 12. When it talks about the gifts this church had a, was blessed with many gifts, and uh, they weren't lacking in that. But because of some of the problems that exist with regard to that, uh, they weren't applying those things properly. And then I think the last part here, when we think about uh, the Thanksgiving, he was grateful and he was thankful that they were waiting for the day of the Lord, that they could be blameless. Um, they weren't, you know, they... They weren't blameless. They, they had issues and problems. But, you know, I think when you look at uh, verse 8, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We think about how he wanted and how Paul looked at these brethren. And I think it's special when you think about how he views these brethren, how he sees this congregation. And prior to us actually getting into some of these divisions and wisdom of men, God versus men, this is something I think that, you know, he opens up to let them see the, how they should be viewing themselves when it comes to their status before God. Their status and all these things. The grace of God that's been lavishly given to them. The, they're enriched in speech and knowledge. Uh, they're not lacking in gifts. Look at how blessed you are, waiting for the day of the Lord. Um, that's uh, I think I think says a lot. So as we as we continue in and kind of get into more of the uh, the the meat here of this chapter, I think we're gonna we're, we're gonna see that uh, Paul starts and and kind of broken it down here to look at uh, look at verse ten. He says to them, "I exhort you, I plead with you." I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, 
but that you may be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, he's kind of starting to get into this division that exists. And before we talk about verse 11, before we get into the house of Chloe um, and some of those things, I want us to think about what are divisions? You think about a division, what comes to your mind just instantly? Divided? Separation? Think about division as tearing or pulling apart, schisms, quarrels. You know, the thing about it is when you you think about a a husband and a wife, a husband and a wife, can a husband and a wife have quarrels? Can they have, do they have quarrels? Mally, do we have quarrels? But then, does that tear us apart? See, we can let it do that. Or we can work it out, and we can do it appropriately. This congregation was dealing with divisions that were separating them. They're dealing with that unity was no longer a thought process. Unity was not being of the same mind. We'll see that as we get more into this. But he talks to them about them having the same mind, the revelation of the mind of God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just flip over here one more chapter to chapter 2 and verse 16. And in that I want to read when he talks to them about being of the same mind. Verse 16, he says, Who has known the mind of the Lord, not the mind of God, that he instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Going back to chapter 1, when we think about what we see here and what he said in verse 10, that by the name of our Lord Jesus, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, that you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. I want to focus for just a minute on that same mind and same judgment when we think about that, if I say that we're the same mind and we're the same judgment, how would we do that? How is it possible? Is it possible for us to be of the same mind? Here we go. Let's think, and, and let's put it this way. I like football. And, I, you know, uh, football team makes a touchdown and they have a PAT after that, that, after that initial six-point touchdown. How, much, how many points is that PAT, point after touchdown? What was it? One point. I might want that to be two points. Somebody else says, you know, I think it would be better if we just make it like the field goals. Let's just make it three points. Well, we're all mixed. we got a problem here. How are we going to sort that out? We're going to have to go back, as David just said, to what? The football rule book. The football playbook. And what's it say? No, it's one point. Now, when we think about of the, being of the same mind, that would be the same standard. So we're using the same standard, the same playbook. We're using the same standard when we think about God's word. But then let's also move that a little bit as we think about the same judgment. What would be another word that we could apply for the same judgment? How could we all see, and I'll refer just again, going back to the football, the football game. How could we all be of the same judgment? What's it take? Same judgment or the same conclusion. We've got to all be of the same conclusion. So 
Everybody's got to come to terms with the fact that, you know what, a PAT, a point after a touchdown, is one point. And we all have to, so to, to, to bring it up to what I think Paul's telling them here in verse 10, he's saying that being of the same mind and the same judgment is the same standard and the same conclusion. That these brethren need to be, need to think about that. They need to apply that. Now he gets into verse 11 and he talks about, I, he talks about, I've been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I want to tell you up front, I switch back and forth between the New American Standard Bible and the New King James Version, just because sometimes there will be a word I like or I feel like that's, you know, that, that just kind of helps me dissect that thought process maybe a little better. So I, I just want you to know, if, if you hear me say something or you see your... Uh, those are the two standards that I'm that I'm actually will read from. Primarily, usually the New American Standard Version. But uh, he's been informed by the household of Chloe. Now, I think this is interesting as well. You know, there was times when I've read about when I've read this. I've read this in the past, and I've thought, you know, Paul is telling this congregation that. He received, as we talked about a while ago, some things that were reported to him by the household of Chloe. And now these brethren know where that information's come from. And I thought, you know, that might make things a little rough for Chloe. You know, I mean, she's kind of, you know, passed this on to Paul. Did Paul throw Chloe under the bus? What do you think about that? problem so that Paul could come and address the problem so they could fix it. She did it because she loved them. What do you think as far as, I appreciate that Leanne, um, what do you think when you think about what she did, is this something that Paul can say to these brethren? You know, I think for Paul to take this and take the information he's received from the house of Chloe, there's got to be some great respect that he has for her in that household. There has to be something. Yes, Debbie. Um, it shows a love for the brethren that Chloe has. And also, when you think about the way Paul is approaching this uh, comment, uh, the, his whole letter, it's all done in love. And it's an example we can take and apply today when you have to correct someone or have those conversations it has to be it has the foundation has to be love and we see that in chapter 13 as he tries to explain why that love is so important when you're having these uh conflicts and disagreements absolutely i appreciate that you know i i think that as as we think about this He's, and, he, and he refers to these brethren being divided. When we see here in verse 13, he's going to move on from that. I, I just thought it was interesting, you know, when I've, when I've read this through the years and I've, and I've studied this. You know, he says in verse 11 that he was informed by Chloe's people, there's quarrels among you. And he says, I mean this now that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. And then in verse 13, he says, has Christ been divided? Go back and look at verse 12. 
we think about he's saying that each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paul, Apollos, I'm of Cephas. What had these brethren done with these gospel preachers, with these people who are proclaiming God's word? What have they done with these men? Okay, they created factions. Okay, they've elevated them. What's wrong with that? You know, one, that, that's right, Mitch, and I appreciate that, um, Sister Gina. Thank, I, I, absolutely, good, good points, and appreciate them. Um, one of the things I think that you know I had read with regard to this city, and just looking at the overview of Corinth, and seeing exactly, you know, the kind of people that came in. There was a lot of there were a lot of philosophers in that day and time that came into this city. A lot of people with, and and people would uh, would see their philosophy or become attached to their philosophy. They would become attached to their message, so to speak, and they would follow them. Um, and I think that was one of the things that, you know, may have happened here, you know, where Paul is telling each one of them, you know, in verse 13, he says, has Christ been divided? Paul wasn't crucified for you, was he? And he says, uh, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that, as we see here, verse 15, no one would say you were baptized in my name. And and if we look at this and we see here, is Paul saying that baptism wasn't essential? I don't think so. He's saying that, you know, if all of you are going to put me on a pedestal like that, all of you are going to elevate me to the point that I'm glad I didn't baptize some of you. I'm glad I wasn't the one that, uh, that baptized you because it was, you know, Christ has not been divided. You were crucified. Christ was crucified for you. You were baptized in the name of Christ. And I think that's what he's trying to say here to these brethren. And as we look like we're about to wrap up here, didn't quite get finished what I wanted to, but uh, verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach. But in cleverness of speech, so and not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would be made void. I think one of the things he's bringing out to them here was, I didn't, you know, I didn't come to you with with eloquence of speech. It wasn't about what you heard from me. It was about the cross of Christ. It was about what I was preaching. It was about the message that I brought to you. And and, and again, Paul was saying, you know, he, he he Jesus sent him on the mission that he's on. To preach the gospel, not not necessarily to baptize. And uh, again, I think that's uh, we're going to have to stop. See, we got people at the doors. I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much.